Search ye the scriptures, said the Lord, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The words and deeds of the prophets and of angels testify to the divinity of Jesus Christ. So likewise does the written record of those words and deeds, the written record. There are many reasons on which we cannot comment here for believing that God gave the miracle of writing to men as a means of keeping record through the ages. Writing is as marvelous and subtle a thing in its operation and in its effects as television is. Here we have a means of transmitting not only the deeds but the very thoughts of men through unlimited expanses of space and time. And this amazingly economical and efficient device has been in the possession of the human race from its very beginning. Writing was not devised by men as a tool to help them in their everyday affairs. The most successful businessmen have been illiterates. There is ample evidence that writing was adopted to practical uses only after such uses were found for it. If you bring together all the written records of man's past, you will discover that the overwhelming mass of material is religious in nature, and that the primary purpose to which writing has been put through the ages has not been for business records and correspondence, which are periodically destroyed anyway, and in which writing is employed awkwardly and without enthusiasm, but for the keeping of a remembrance of God's dealings with men. The specific purpose of writing, as the tradition of the Egyptians puts it, is to record the medel netter, the divine words. We've skirted the fringe of speculation here for a moment only, to recall to a generation that has forgotten to read the scripture that the written word is one of the means chosen and established by God for communicating with his children. It is not the only means or the most direct means. To insist on that is a common fallacy of the sectarian world. A man who can convey his mind to others only through a written letter must be personally inaccessible to them, either because of distance, death, or some other obstacle. And to say that God can speak to men no more clearly or more directly than in written pages hundreds of years old is to impose upon him the most pathetic human limitations. <clears throat> of course God can speak to men now as directly as he ever did and the scripture is but one of his ways of speaking to them. But it is a most effective way, and one that has peculiar advantages of its own. The main thing is it overcomes time. The scriptures are the common meeting ground of all the prophets, no matter how many centuries apart they may have lived. Here they all speak a common tongue and bear witness to each other. The prophets constantly and characteristically quote each other. They're doing that all the time. The New Testament everywhere quotes the Old Testament. After the resurrection, the Lord taught using the very words of Moses and the prophets and employing the scriptures for that purpose. And he said that those who did not believe those prophets would never believe him. As no one has the right to limit God's capacity to speak to men with his own voice whenever and wherever he will, neither has anyone the authority to say that God may not, when he will, present his children with his word in writing by dictating scripture to his prophets, by bringing forth forgotten writings of the ancients, by guiding the work of an inspired translator, or in any way he chooses. We have said before that the test of the soundness of men's hearts is their willingness to accept the message of a living prophet. The same applies to their willingness to accept God's word in any form. So the Lord has told us, through an ancient prophet, how it is when men who reject the living prophets, because they already have dead ones, are confronted with God's written word. Thou fool, that shall say a Bible, we have got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. <laughs> have ye obtained the Bible, save it were by the Jews? Know ye not that there are more nations than one? 
Know ye not that I, the Lord your God, have created all men, and that I remember those who were upon the isles of the sea, and that I rule in the heavens above and in the earth beneath, and I bring forth my word unto the children of men, yea, even unto all the nations of the earth. Wherefore I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. And when the two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. And I do this that I may prove unto many that I am the same, yesterday, today, and forever, that I speak forth my words according to mine own pleasure. And because I have spoken one word, ye need not suppose that I cannot speak another, and so on. Those words are the words of the prophet Nephi found in the Book of Mormon a book which in many such passages opens that window on other worlds. Here we learn that God has been in contact at sundry times and places with nations of whose existence the world had never dreamed, and even with the inhabitants of other worlds, for the house of man, we are told, is but one among many mansions. This doctrine of other worlds, incidentally, though not infrequently indicated in the early Christian writings, was one totally strange and foreign to the world into which the restored gospel was introduced. Just as all churches agreed in denouncing as unspeakable blasphemy the proposition that there could be any other holy scripture than that contained in the canon of the Old and New Testament, so all agreed that the idea that there might possibly be any other world than this one with its heaven above and its hell beneath, it being the exact center of all things, was utterly preposterous. Nobody could imagine anything else. The absolute uniqueness and centralness of this our world was basic to the whole philosophy and cosmology of Aristotle and to that of the schools as it was of Oregon, of Augustine, and the Middle Ages, culminating, as we all know, in the marvelous airtight cosmos of Dante. People forget that fact today, now that the churches are finding it expedient to teach otherwise. But at the time the gospel was restored to the world, such a teaching was radically opposed to anything taught anywhere. It's another case in which time has vindicated the prophets. But in its own right, apart from its being proven in our own day, it is a marvelous doctrine. It's what might be called the law of perfect economy. There is no waste in the universe. There is no space, says the Lord, in which there is no kingdom. And there is no kingdom in which there is no space. And unto every kingdom there is given a law. And unto every law there are certain bounds and also and conditions. All beings who abide not in those conditions are not justified. Even the earth, we are taught, is not the exclusive home of man. It is shared by other creatures who fulfill the measure of their existence and have joy in the sphere in which they were created. Man has first claim on the earth and all that is in it. But though he makes poor use of that claim on the earth, today the earth is not wasted. It's used by other creatures of whose nature and whose very existence we have hardly an inkling, and that's our fault. It's a wonderful doctrine that widens our horizon to infinity. And it was first revealed to the world in modern times in and by the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, the words of many prophets are brought together for the particular instruction of our own age. It's a carefully selected work with that purpose in view. Those words are presented to the world in a strange and wonderful form. Go through the whole literature of devotion and you'll find no book like this. If the great Christian writings of such widely differing geniuses as the scholastic thinkers of the Middle Ages, Swedenborg, and the author of Science and Health, were to be printed on loose leaf, the pages of all these could be freely shuffled among each other without any serious disruption of style or content. They're all doing the same thing, simply commenting on the Bible. And they all use, with mechanical ease and practiced skill, one and the same key, the old Neoplatonic formula of spiritual interpretation. It's an easy game to play. 
It's a much harder thing, in fact, to spend many years with the scripture without acquiring the conviction that one is privy to the deeper secrets of their interpretation. But none of these inspired writers, though claiming inside knowledge into the mind of God, will face up to the test of a prophet and speak as one having authority. In the end, the Bible is always their authority. And like the scribes and Pharisees of old, they can always pass off onto it the responsibility for whatever they say. This is not the case with the Book of Mormon. What do we find in it? A wealth of doctrine embedded in large amounts of what is put forth as genuine historical material, not devotional or speculative or interpretive or creative writing, but genuine historical fact, stuff that touches on reality, geographical, ethnological, linguistic, culture, and so forth, at a thousand places. Of all these points, on all these points, the Book of Mormon can sooner or later be tested, and Joseph Smith knew that. We can't possibly deny his good faith in placing it before the whole world without any reservation. Aside from all other consideration, it is a staggering work. Its mass and complexity alone would defy the talent of any living man or body of men to duplicate today. Its histories are full and circumstantial, yet sober, simple, straightforward. There's nothing contrived, nothing exaggerated, nothing clever in the whole book. For a century and a quarter, it has undergone the closest scrutiny at the hands of its friends and enemies, and today it stands up better than ever. Let me illustrate briefly how very recent findings have vindicated the Book of Mormon on two broad and general themes. We mention these because I don't think they've ever been mentioned before. From the Book of Mormon, we learn through the centuries that the Jews have had, as it were, a double history. Along with the conventional story of the nation, as recorded in the official accounts, kept closely under the control of the schoolmen, there has coexisted in enforced obscurity another Israel, a society of righteous seekers zealously devoting their lives to the preservation of the law of their fathers in all its purity, and considering the bulk of their nation to have fallen into sin and transgression. These righteous ones lived a life of their own, and while they sought constantly to bring the others into their way, they were just as constantly resisted with mockery and persecution. Often they took to the desert and lived in family groups or communities there, teaching the law and the prophets to each other and looking forward prayerfully to the coming of the Messiah. There were many dreamers among them, real prophets as well, for they believed, like, uh, unlike the scribes and doctors of official Jewry, in continued prophecy. Also they practiced rites rejected by the majority of the nation and talked constantly of such things as resurrection of the flesh and the eternities to come things which, though they figure prominently enough in the apocryphal writings, including the Talmud, are hardly found at all in the official canon of Jewish scripture. They were a sober, watchful, industrious people, sorely distressed by the wickedness of their nation as a whole, and that nation would have nothing to do with them and did all it could to make it seem that they didn't even exist. This, briefly, is the picture the Book of Mormon paints of Lehi and his ancestors, who had from time to time been driven out of Jerusalem for looking forward too eagerly for the Messiah. It is also the picture that now meets us in the abundant and ever-increasing documents which have come forth from the caves of Palestine almost in a steady stream since the first find was made in 1947. For some years, the best scholars, Jewish and Christians, fought strenuously against accepting any of the so-called Dead Sea Scrolls as genuine. They must be medieval forgeries, it was argued, as recently as 1952 and three, since the they represent is one totally at variance with a picture which had been delineated by the meticulous labors of generations of devoted scholars. It is not a single revolution in the study of biblical exegesis which the Dead Sea documents have brought about, wrote Dupont Sommet, whose own conclusions, once judged hasty and radical, have now been remarkably vindicated. 
It is, he says, one already feels a whole cascade of revolutions. Since those words were published just two years ago, the manuscripts have continued to pour forth as cave after cave has been discovered and opened. And as new scrolls are unrolled, the picture itself is unrolling, the picture of that other Israel that lived in obscurity and hope, first sketched out for us in the Book of Mormon, and now for the first time emerging into the light of history. The Book of Mormon also draws another picture of a very different type of society. And this also has become a historical reality only within the last 30 years or so. It was once thought that the world which Homer described was purely the product of his own inventive genius. Toward the end of the 18th century, however, the shrewd and observant uh, scholar and traveler Robert Wood had the idea of writing a detailed work in which the similarities of the cultures exhibited in the Old Testament in Homer and in the Near East of his own day should be collected and prove that a Homeric age is a real and recurrent type in human society. That's a quotation. Wood died before he could produce the work, and it was not until the 1930s that Milman Parry showed that what is called heroic poetry is necessarily, I'm quoting now, created by people who are living in a certain way and so have a certain outlook on life. And our understanding of the heroic will only come as we learn what that way of living is and grasp that outlook. Then Chadwick showed that epic poetry cannot possibly be produced except in and by a genuine epic milieu, as he called it. A highly developed, highly complex, very peculiar, but firmly established and very ancient cultural structure. How ancient may be guessed from Kramer's recent and confident attempt to describe the culture of the earliest Sumerians, mind you, in detail, simply on the basis of the knowledge that they produced a typical epic literature, knowing that one may be sure that theirs was the same culture that is described in epic poetry throughout the world. For epic cannot be faked. Innumerable attempts to produce convincing epics by creative imagination are almost pitifully transparent. Now one of the books of the Book of Mormon the Book of Ether comes right out of that epic milieu, which it faithfully reproduces. These scholars have listed, oh, a hundred different characteristics, all of which are present in the Book of Ether. <clears throat> Here is a good test for the Book of Mormon, you see. Of course, the world of, uh, the world of Joseph Smith never heard of such a thing as an epic milieu. That's why it is a good test. It's but one of many, all awaiting fuller treatment, and none as yet settled with any degree of finality. But the mere fact that there is such a test is a most astonishing thing, that one can actually talk about the Book of Mormon seriously and with growing respect after all that has been discovered in the last 125 years is considering the nature of its publication, as far as I'm concerned, in itself ample proof of its genuineness. But the Book of Mormon was not meant as a sign and a wonder to an unbelieving world. Though an angel from heaven were to declare it, we are told the world would not believe. It was meant to give instruction to those who should believe in these last days. It is a book for hard times and for great times. I have always thought in reading the Book of Mormon, woe to the generation that understands this book. To our fathers, once the great persecution ceased, the story of the Nephites and Lamanites was something rather strange, unreal and far away, even to the point of being romantic. The last generation didn't make much of the Book of Mormon, but now with every passing year this great and portentous story becomes more and more familiar and more frighteningly like our own. It's an exciting thing to discover that the man Lehi was a real historical character, a fact that can now be established with a high degree of probability. But it's far more important and significant to find oneself in this 20th century standing, as it were, in his very shoes. The events and situations of the Book of Mormon 
that not many years ago seemed wildly improbable and greatly overdrawn have suddenly become the story of our own times, when we see and shall see the words of those prophets who speak to us from the dust, fearfully and wonderfully vindicated. <laughs>